It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. On today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss... Rishi Sunak's mini-budget, and you ask us, how different would things be if Sajid Javid was still Chancellor? So, Rishi Sunak did his mini-statement of kind of measures designed to stimulate the economy as the I was about to say, as the country kind of unlocks down, but in some ways that's a slightly weird thing, because he... So, the kind of big measures were a cut in stamp duty, so you won't pay it, on anything under the value of 50, uh, I keep saying 50 grand, 500 grand, a very big difference, a thousand pounds per job one-off payment to any firm or business which retains a currently furloughed employee until January, and a 50% off meal voucher in participating outlets with a cap value of up to 10 pounds. These are all stimulus measures. I think there are kind of there are two criticisms, one of which I think is actually broadly is incorrect, but is sort of is is it's like it's incidentally correct, but it's not kind of particularly important, which is that it's quite small. And the other is the kind of like it's is this actually a situation that requires economic stimulus? And then the kind of third thing which I think is actually more serious is the lack of any sort of action on welfare. Yeah. So that was the big thing that was missing for me. He did announce, I think it was 1 billion um, for the DWP, but a lot of the rhetoric in his speech was focused on work coaches and sort of back to work schemes rather than any substantial changes to the generosity of universal credit or how it works or how easy it is to access, which given we are still, despite his interventions, facing mass unemployment, mass redundancies when the furlough scheme peters out or when the furlough scheme sort of sticking plaster incentive to bring your workers back finishes in January, people are going to need that welfare system. And there wasn't much suggestion there that that had been a focus for the Treasury. And, you know, even if that extra money all went towards trying to um, trying to make universal credit better to use for its claimants, there's no suggestion that even that would would be enough. So I thought that was the main thing that was missing for me from the interventions. Perhaps it was perhaps that was for rhetorical reasons and there will be more substance. We don't actually know yet. So 
you know, being fair to Rishi Sunak, we don't actually know that yet. But what's telling is this idea of of, of, of hiring more work coaches, etc. When actually one in ten job centres has, has been closed since in the last decade. So, you know, where is that infrastructure for for? We've never really had the universal credit system, as you've said many times, Stephen, has never really functioned in a period of actual high levels of unemployment, even if the kind of jobs miracle kind of employment status quo that we've had the past 10 years has been a bit of a disguise for 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 precarious work. Yeah, I think if I were Rishi Sunak, I would be really annoyed with that person or whoever leaked the the news about the stamp duty holiday, because I think it it kind of scuppered the the thematic coherence of the mini statement. And um, like you were saying, Anush, about the kind of the rhetorical purpose of it as well as the as well as the very material purpose of it i think that it w- was kind of intended to be a mini statement focusing pretty much entirely on mass youth unemployment which like would then in itself be the kind of cornerstone of addressing lots of the problems that we're facing economically but like but that that would be the overall theme so there there were lots of other things you know like lots of money for PPE and for the test and trace scheme but that that would be the kind of headline of it and I think that with the announcement on stamp duty which they hadn't planned on bringing in until the autumn and they just had to because you can't announce or you can't allow there to be an expectation that a stamp duty holiday is coming down the line like once there's once people get wind of it, you have to do it immediately. I think that maybe that announcement, yeah, slightly scuppered the overall message or the or the sense that this wasn't intended to do everything, but it was sort of a package of, of, of stimulus in a particular area that would have an intended knock-on effect. So like, as you were saying, Stephen, that, you know, £1,000 for employers who keep a, a furloughed employee until January and the, the meal vouchers which target a sector which disproportionately employs young people, hospitality, and then also the Kickstarter scheme for young people. Like you can kind of see with those headline things that the thing that Rishi Sunak is most preoccupied with or wanted to focus on with this, which wasn't a full budget and didn't come with the spending review, the thing he wanted to focus on was was stemming some of the of the mass youth unemployment that we can see coming down the line so that we don't have a, a lost generation, as it were. What was interesting was that this the speech almost seemed to take place in this parallel universe where the virus wasn't at the front of everyone's minds. And Stephen, I know you've been writing a lot about this since the start, really, about the fact that easing lockdown is not a government decision in itself, is it? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really interesting things, and apologies to anyone who's who's read much of my stuff, because I'm aware that I've started, this has started to become like sort of a terrible, slightly dull catchphrase. But then... If the the debate in the last recession was broadly, should the Treasury cut or increase spending? And in many ways, the debate now is to what extent is this? Is this a problem that the Treasury can solve? Full stop. Because people went into lockdown, not just in the in the United Kingdom, but across Europe, people went into lockdown the second the photos started coming out of Italy. Yeah, that is the period when um, people started cancelling things, when employees employers started making provisions to work distantly where they could. Uh, you know, when I think about the kind of people I know who work in um, work in hospitality, that was the point when the ones who, yeah, it's obviously I'm the, of the age where the people I know who work in hospitality have started to move into, you know, either running their own places or running rotors or whatever. But that was the point when when um, when those people were kind of starting to look at their rotors and going, 
oh God, I've had X number of covers and I've got Y number of people to employ and X amount of rent to pay and the numbers uh, numbers here do not add up. And yeah, it did seem to be, I do think it feels to me like Rishi Sunak has kind of started to believe his own hype. It's like he believes that the lockdown is a thing that happened because they stood up and went, lockdown is happening and we're going to pay you to stay home, rather than what happened was, right? Because we see this in Sweden, right? Whether you formally lock down or not, you actually could see this in the polio epidemics in, in the 1950s, right? If there's a disease coming around the track and people don't, and there isn't a cure and people don't know how deadly it is, people decide to withdraw their social contacts. And the decision before the government is to what extent you can you subsidise your way through that. And I kind of think that, yeah, the, this mini budget would have made a huge amount of sense to me if we were New Zealand and we had zero cases and it was a kind of like, what are the things we can do to get money circulating again? Yeah, and I, I guess this is why actually performance is usually something which doesn't matter, but I think it does matter a huge amount. And is he performing competence? Well, he clearly is because he's very popular. I think the thing, if I were the government, if I were Boris Johnson, the thing I would be doing is I would be making Rishi Sunak have to do all of the announcements and all of the get out to work for two reasons. One, at the moment, Rishi Sunak is basically the only thing about the government that people like. And two, because... Like fundamentally, as Bridget Phillipson said, the, the morning of the budget and Annalise Dodds, who we should we should discuss in, in some point, said in her response, right, this is fundamentally a health crisis that has caused an economic crisis. It is not an economic crisis that happens to be running at the same time as a health crisis. The one sort of bit of economic, the one economic lever I think he could have pulled, which is one he didn't, is to reassure people who are now saving because they think there's going to be a massive recession, they're going to lose, they'll lose their jobs and their homes that the welfare state will prevent them from losing their jobs and their homes. Yeah, I think I think that's the that's the number one thing. The kind of the two things of like consumer confidence has collapsed because people don't have the literal confidence in a lot of cases that the public health response run by the government is sufficient to identify and catch and isolate a case of coronavirus that could be sitting in the restaurant beside you and then people are reluctant to go out. I mean, it's. I think it's just so obvious that, like, if you're if you're worried about, as you say, Stephen, like, if you're worried about a redundancy coming down the line, or you aren't sure what's going to happen as the impact of this recession really hits you, the last thing you're going to do is spend your disposable income going out to a restaurant that, like, everyone knows that, like, the first things you you cut back on and save are are eating out if you're trying to save money. And I even think that, like, it's obviously completely right that this is an economic crisis caused by a health crisis. But the economic crisis is also exposing a lot of the the vulnerabilities within the existing economic system. And I'm just very aware of that, that, for example, like young people famously don't have very many savings and that basically since austerity, there's a, a very low level of economic resilience in the UK economy where lots and lots and lots of people don't have any savings. And so some people obviously have lost their jobs in this crisis or or are furloughed, and it's sort of different for them. But the people who still have jobs and are still on an income are kind of relatively better off in this crisis in some ways than they were before, because in lots of ways, there's less to spend money on. So like the younger people or the people with like with that lack of economic resilience are in some cases like for the first time in a position where they can save some money and 
they're not about to be incentivized to go back out to a restaurant when like that's the that's the thing that articles since millennials became a thing they have been criticized for going on to to restaurants and so on too much and like not taking a responsible enough attitude towards savings when really they they just weren't earning enough because wages haven't risen sufficiently but now I think that some of that has been recovered people are like in a situation where they if they're still earning can save a bit more and feel like they really need to yeah until there's some sort of guarantee that there's no need to be saving I don't think that you know getting basically a fiver off wagamamas is, is going to incentivize people to go out yeah. And I think we can already see that happening. So we got some polling done for us just before Rishi Sunak's speech by Redfield and Wilton, which are a polling company. And they, they found that 15% of people visited a pub on the day that they opened, 10% visited a restaurant and 12% visited a hairdresser. Now that was supposed to be super Saturday, you know, when everyone was supposed to feel, feel safe and to go out for the first time. And, you know, those figures of those figures, you know, 34% of the people who went to the pub felt unsafe. 32% who went to a restaurant felt unsafe. 28% who went to the hairdressers felt unsafe. And it's similar figures for people who, when they were asked whether they will go back later this year. So that doesn't really bode well. And Rishi Sunak is always talking about how our economy is led by social consumption, which is perhaps why we're suffering more than other countries that, that we're compared to. But if we are so dependent on that, how is the work going to be there for these young people who they're trying to make training and, and, and job places for if we don't have that demand there, particularly in those industries like hospitality and retail and, you know, the beauty industry that seems to have been completely overlooked, um, leisure and entertainment. You can try and sort of shoehorn as many training and job schemes into these industries as you want, but the work has to be there. The hours have to be there. And, and how will those hours be there if such small numbers of people are feeling confident to go out again? And and also this, this was an opportunity, wasn't it, Alva, for the Labour Party in particular, Annalise Dodds. You wrote about how this was her first proper test as Shadow Chancellor. How do you think she fared? Yeah, and it's funny because I do think it was her first proper test, even though she did have to do the same thing in March when Rishi Sunak announced the the furlough scheme. And she had to do that sort of snap response to a big economic statement from the Chancellor, which is a really tricky thing for the Shadow Chancellor to do and makes it one of the things that makes being Shadow Chancellor one of the most difficult jobs in politics. But I think that the, it was easier then because we were we were at the very beginning of this crisis and there was a need to sort of be a constructive opposition and supportive and conciliatory. And she was able to take quite a gentle tone and it didn't feel like the stakes were as high. Whereas this time, I think there was a feeling that things are a bit more political again in general. And that there's a lot of pressure and expectation on her, mainly because, as I explained in the piece, I think there are two sort of overlapping things. There's firstly a a general curiosity, which hasn't really been satisfied or addressed yet, as to the kind of shadow chancellor that she's going to be and the role that she's going to be playing in Starmer's labour in the long term, like how she'll relate to him and the kind of clout that she will or won't have. And then the more specific speculation and and very sort of gentle briefing against her in some newspapers, suggesting that basically she's being overshadowed by Ed Miliband, who 
is obviously the former Labour leader and is is now the shadow business secretary. So their briefs overlap. Anyone who listens to his, his podcast, our rival podcast, Reasons to be <laughs> Cheerful, will know that he takes like, a huge interest in, in the green recovery and, and, and green jobs. And if you saw his appearance on Andrew Marr, either last weekend or the weekend before, you can see he's really, really passionate about it, but the, their briefs very much overlap the way they always would. But I think there's a there's a sense that he has parked his tanks on her lawn. On the one hand, it, the briefings have been a bit criti- critical of, of him for, in Rachel of Sylvester's column in the Times, it's sort of suggested that he's undermining the shadow treasury's attempts to come across as economically credible. But then on the other hand, it's like not very good for Annalisa Dodds because it's suggesting that she's being shadowed for her role by Ed Miliband. And and I think that's very undermining for her. So that was the context in which she was delivering this speech. And I thought it was interesting. I mean, Twitter is not the public by any means, but I thought I detected a kind of mixed response where some people felt that I think, I mean, shrill is a very, <laughs> shrill is a very gendered word, so I'm not going to use it. But I think like the kind of the more sexist responses were sort of suggesting that she had been a bit shrill and demanding. Julia Hartley Brewer, the sort of right wing commentator, shared a gif of, of Oliver demanding more. But I think there was a sense among some people that she had been a bit too demanding and critical and that she didn't get the tone right. And also some suggestion that her speech was too too pre-prepared and not and that she wasn't demonstrating thinking on her feet enough. Whereas I, I didn't really agree with that assessment. I thought that especially against this backdrop where people have been suggesting that she's being undermined and also there's a sort of more general interest in whether she is too conciliatory in her role, that, you know, she's always been the kind of person who has has maintained genuinely good relationships across the parliamentary party. Now she's, she genuinely gets on well and is very highly regarded by the Corbynite left in the party, but also doesn't have any enemies on any other side of the party. She's like generally well-liked, um, which arguably counts in her favour, but also arguably suggests that she doesn't have precise enough political opinions to make political enemies and that might suggest that she isn't going to be putting up much opposition to to Keir Starmer's ideas and that she isn't going to be stamping her own identity so much on on the role of shadow chancellor I think that even people who 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 really like her say that she doesn't have politics and that and that's been really interesting to observe like whether she does or not so I thought that when she delivered the the response to Rishi Sunak's mini statement yesterday, that she did a really good job, that her tone was was much tougher than normal. Probably because, I mean, if I were her, I would just be annoyed that people have been suggesting I'm not up to the task. Like the tone was tougher, but I think also it's like what we've been saying so far, that I think the only way to do justice to that statement was to place it in its much broader context of being one of the the countries with the worst death rates in the world and being one of the worst hit economies in the industrial world. And that we, I mean, the thing, even before she started speaking, the thing I was thinking about while when Rishi Sunak was speaking was, you know, that old biblical quote that like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing, that that, that was all well and good. But if another part of government isn't on top of the public health response, then it then it's kind of meaningless. And I think that she was very good at, explaining that like confidence 
won't consumer demand won't increase until people feel confident enough in the test and trace system basically and that I think people read that as being a bit pre-prepared or dodging the specifics but I think that that was entirely right that like like what is the point if if you're going to bring in certain schemes like this if you're not addressing the 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 much wider context that's influencing consumer demand so I I thought that she did a good job in, in a really difficult in difficult circumstances and I also just have absolutely no truck with the people on Twitter who seem to think that she isn't really able because she's a former academic in comparative public policy and I think really more than more than most politicians has a has an especially good grasp of how we compare to to other similar states and 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 including in this crisis on their economic and public health responses I think that she is quite an authority on these things and so there's these people who were doing that maybe again I'm just treating Twitter like it's the real world when it isn't but the kinds of people who who seem to think that she wasn't smart enough to be doing that were just like I don't know what they were watching no I think you're right I mean there is I think I think I think it does go beyond Twitter because there is sort of proof that people in general see female politicians who who they who they don't know and aren't used to and and who they see as new as inexperienced for a lot longer than they see their male counterparts as inexperienced for so part of it is is that sexist perspective and and just in, in another general point I do think I I feel I feel a bit for labor politicians not just the shadow chancellor when they have to welcome government plans and government spending but say well but it's nowhere near enough you know I just I just feel so sorry for them when they have to give that message because obviously it's completely fair and and quite often it's true but it does you know if I was just a general member of the public that would stop you know sounding particularly convincing to me after a while you know you maybe you start to sound ungrateful or you start to sound like you're trying to oppose the government for the sake of it even if you agree with the spirit of, of what they're trying to do. Stephen, is that something that Keir Starmer's operation is concerned about? Yeah, I mean, I think because obviously their their sort of central project at the moment is one to, well, was first to introduce Keir Starmer, which they have, I think it's fair to say, done successfully. And now they're aware they need to be able to introduce the wider team because they need for they need Keir Starmer himself to remain to be able to retain some kind of novelty value. Right. At the moment, obviously, their only other sort of outlets in terms of people who can kind of get coverage on their own as kind of forces are Ed Miliband and David Lammy. And it's because I, I obviously re- responding to this Chancellor's statement is a bit of a losing wicket for the Shadow Chancellor. And I think she did well on, on the very narrow but quite important metric that no one in the Labour Party has in the last 24 hours suggested to me that she should not be in that job, which is not been true for any shadow chancellor's response to the budget that I have covered ever because because you are just are just in the loser's corner and when you go back and look at kind of you know occasionally when I'm stuck on the column I'll go back and look through you know say the the NS archives or your kind of other papers archives right but if you even if you go back so not that far away to kind of George Osborne's response to Gordon Brown you had people going oh maybe he's not very good Maybe this is why they need to bring, yeah, maybe after they brought Ken Clark back, oh, maybe they need to substitute Ken Clark in for um, for him. And in some ways, the, well, obviously, there's a slight difference in Ken Clark was for a long time the most popular conservative politician in the country, which Ed Miliband, I think everyone would, would concede is not. 
the most popular Labour politician in the country. But there, there's the same dynamic, right? In the Ed unquestionably is someone who could be chancellor. You know, when I did my exercise of going around asking civil servants and politicians, you know, who do you think could do this job? His was a name which came up in in almost uh, every conversation. So his presence, as with Ken Clark's, is innately is, is always going to be a slight issue. And I think that, yeah, the, the fact that, that no one in the Labour Party is going, it's time to make a sub or it's time to bring in a vet Cooper or it's time to, particularly because one of the weird problems that the shadow front bench, the shadow chancellor always has, is the shadow chief secretaries of the treasury will always do the morning round and they will always do it better. I thought Bridget Phillipson's line on the exact same thing was delivered a lot better, but that's because she was responding to questions that, okay, she didn't know in advance. But if you are a sensible political operator, you can prepare and you can take those questions well. Whereas if you are the shadow chancellor and you have to stand up and respond, I did think, I guess, you know, to be slightly more finicky because I'm finicky. I think it was a good example of one of the problems that I think every shadow chancellor I have seen done do this has lapsed into is a belief that they need to go on for longer than they should. Hmm. When particularly when you're in this kind of loser's corner that like Labour's position on this, which I think is, is essentially correct is, well, this stuff would be, this is a great stimulus package if you've dealt with the virus, but you haven't, so you probably need to do that. Yeah. It doesn't actually get more impressive through repetition. It does actually, I think, start to grate on people. It's it, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think in general, every shadow chancellor I have seen would have benefited if they had sat, if they had spoken for three minutes and sat down. Because although, like, people in print would have, some people would have gone like, it's so short. You've got you've you've got your clip for the for the news, and you've actually you've more importantly you've actually made your underlying argument in that time. It's also interesting. The thing I have been aware of, because I, I feel like I am inclined to to stick up for Annalisa Dodds and to be impressed by her because I interviewed her not that long ago, and so I think I have more of a sense of what she's like as a person and and her and all of the things that qualify her for the role. Um, certainly that you know the. The scheme of £1,000 for employers to keep their furloughed workers, to keep on a furloughed worker until January, is something that, as far as I can remember, I'm happy to be corrected on this, she didn't respond to in her response or, or in media appearances shortly afterwards. And it's only really today that the criticism is emerging that that's going to waste a lot of money because employers are, are going to be rewarded for keeping on workers mm. in lots of cases that they were going to keep on anyway and that it's it's not sufficiently targeted I think I think that's interesting because I that that's not the argument that Labour is making I'm wondering what the two of you think of it just in terms of is that a kind of almost an attack from the right on the government in that it isn't sufficiently targeted and so people will be receiving money when they don't necessarily need it like if you extrapolate that argument out that's a bit like it's that's an argument against anything that universally benefits people you know like I mean aren't aren't we wasting money you know letting rich people use the NHS for free when they don't really need it like I think is that a kind of slippery slope argument I guess I just think the difference is is that like yeah, wow. Like, wow, I'm feeling I'm feeling very left wing today. Uh, uh, corporations. So mostly, actually, it is useful to think of corporations as people. But we're not talking about giving every furloughed worker who returns a grand. We're talking about giving every business who brings back a furloughed worker uh, a grand, which I'm just less certain of the economic value of. 
I mean, to be honest, I do just basically think that's a, it's a stupid policy. I don't think it will protect very many jobs. I think the, the time spent devising it could have been spent devising literally anything else. And so I'm therefore kind of biased to any criticism. Yeah, then someone could be like, the problem with this is it's, you know, a plan to control the world. And I would just be like, yep, seems legit. But yeah, I think it, I, do, I do think it's not quite the same because um, because ultimately you are just increasing the cash reserves of of businesses without kind of thinking about whether or not that's something you'd want to do. Now, of course, I realize I'm slightly con- con- I'm slightly unconvincing myself now, which is the flip side of that is the thing that Keir Starmer has kind of decided to make a conscious choice not to talk about is Brexit. Now, it looks likely that businesses are going to be asked to. You know, to to bear a fairly significant shift in how they operate at the end of the year, and so at that position, at that point, giving people a sort of chunk of money that they can spend on weathering that becomes more sensible. But then that's you know one that would have been a reason to extend when we had the option to do so, but also that that is a reason not to do that. I just think, yeah, I, I do just think I, I, I'm I'm not into giving large chunks of money to flourishing businesses and calling that universalism if you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too then why not subscribe to the new statesman you can get 12 weeks for 12 pounds go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12 Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. time for a section we like to call you ask ask us us. and the question today came via email from a reader of our fun and free morning email how would things be different if Sajid Javid were still chancellor this is such an interesting question because Sajid Javid didn't even manage to deliver a budget when he was chancellor did he so we almost don't really know what kind of chancellor he would have been I associate Sajid Javid with the fiscal rules in the manifesto that said that the Conservatives wouldn't raise VAT, national insurance or or income tax, which is basically what Rishi Sunak has very gently been trying to hint will, will not be the case for very much longer. So it's difficult to know whether or not Sajid Javid himself would have come to the same conclusion given the circumstances. But that certainly seems to be something that has been at least rhetorically, you know, unless they change it then economically tying the hands of this government since since he made that rule. Yeah, it's interesting because I do kind of think in an odd way, yeah, this is going to sound really stupid if he decides he doesn't think that his moment will come again and, 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 and does decide to leave politics for a plum job in six months' time. But I think Sajid Javid quitting is literally the best thing to have happened to both his and Rishi Sunak's reputation. Mm. Because one, like... Yeah, as like you know, although like he did sign up to those fiscal rules, which were quite tight, and we talked about 
the tightness of, of of them a fair old amount before you know all of all of that stuff um kind of became was made redundant by the pandemic mm. one of the weird things about the fact that boris johnson does not have any does not have very many parliamentary friends right he he's a political loner yeah that is the, the strength of his appeal to the conservative party is he's you know seen as a maverick who can win other places than so he didn't have the option of being able to go okay who am i going to put in this role who's ideologically close to me and in many ways essentially what's kind of happened right is that i i don't think the response would have been that different other than the quite important difference than there would be more spads in the treasury because obviously there's this joint downing street team it is mostly based in downing street and that i think does account for the kind of very distinct treasury institutional vibes and a lot what they've done gives off and that includes the stuff which has worked very well as well as the stuff which has worked very badly but like the yeah, the, the fact that all of the stuff for the self-employed is kind of freighted with this suspicion that self-employed people are, are you know, all tax evaders is like it's kind of like vintage institutional groupthink, which I I suspect would be different if not so much would be different if Sajid Javid was, was there, but would be different if Rishi Sunak had the same shaped operation as Sajid Javid or Philip Hammond or Gordon Brown or George Osborne or Alistair Darling would have had. But it has, I think, also kind of allowed Sajid Javid to carve out this very clever political niche. Now, these are all things that he believes, but it's kind of allowed him to, like, reclaim his position as, you know, kind of like thoughtful free marketer, marketeer who isn't afraid to call out his party on when he thinks it's, it's not being straight on race issues, rather than the kind of reality of Sajid Javid, man who signed up to shall we say, slightly more um, ideologically heterodox spending plans than that political positioning would involve. And yeah, and it, I think it does kind of mean that I feel like, in an odd way, it has probably actually slightly increased. It's, I, think, I think the significant thing is, I think it's, if Sajid Javid had gone through this crisis, I suspect you would have the same situation in which the Chancellor was the most popular politician in the country. But that would be much more destabilising for the government because of the pre-existing antagonism, not actually between Boris Johnson and Sajid Javid themselves, but between at, at an advisor level. That's interesting because I kind of thought that politically you would you would say the opposite, that maybe Sajid Javid would be less popular right now than, than Rishi Sunak. Because I don't, I don't really feel like I know enough about Sajid Javid's precise economic positions to have much of a sense of what he would be doing differently in terms of the policies he'd be bringing in at the moment. And they, you know, they could be, you know, broadly quite similar. But I think like the politics of it is just so interesting that it has given Rishi Sunak this incredible platform from a complete un- unknown position to be the kind of I mean, it's not really good cop, bad cop. It's kind of a bad a bad analogy, but he's a sort of yin to Boris Johnson's yang in that he like he contrasts perfectly with Boris Johnson in that he makes up for all of the obvious weaknesses in Boris Johnson as a politician and the kind of the relief of Boris Johnson makes Rishi Sunak look even more impressive when he delivers speeches that seem to be very reassuring and prime ministerial and authoritative and he seems to be just like really smart and handsome and amazing as seems to be the consensus and I I sort of wonder if because Sajid Javid didn't have the advantage of 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 coming to this role from nowhere 
if people would have been a little bit less impressed by him. And I think also, I'm not sure how much this trickles down to the wider public, but the way he was being so undermined um, in the months before he eventually resigned, I think that there was a kind of a feeling that he was quite weak and that, you know, he was sort of becoming a sort of political eunuch. And even though the like the end result of that is that like Rishi Sunak also doesn't have his own advisors in the way that Sajid Javid objected to, I, I just feel like the way the conversation was set up around Sajid Javid would maybe have prevented him from making a splash as this shiny new politician who's saving us um, in the way that Rishi Sunak has. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think, yeah, obviously, well, I should stop comparing him to, to Nigel Lawson because Nigel Lawson reads the New Statesman, it turns out, and the last time I did it, he wrote a letter to me saying that I had I had got, got things wrong uh, about, about what was wrong in the <laughs> Which was a slightly terrifying experience. I think in, in lots of ways, right, what, what has happened is exactly analogous to what happened with Thatcher and Lawson and indeed Brown and Darling, right, where you start with someone who is entirely the product of, of a powerful prime minister and they pick essentially the, poli- uh, the most qualified politician available, but also crucially as someone who has no separate political power base to them, right? They are a wholly owned subsidiary of them. But the thing is, is the second that things start going well or badly in the economy, I the only two directions the economy can go in, the institutional power of the Chancellor kind of predominates. You know, like Lawson becomes powerful enough to to disagree with her on the, uh, the ERM and to pursue his own uh, approach on that. Darling becomes powerful enough to be a serious force in his own right, to say slightly different things on 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 cuts versus investment than than Gordon Brown wanted him to say, and and Rishi Sunak is now a powerful force in his own right, who is able to you know hold on to the best announcements for Rishi, have the like best Photoshop, yeah, like has yeah, like yeah, like when was the last time he had to like be the one who had to do like really bad news? Which I mean, I think is is weirdly one of the government's problems that they're most reassuring and well-liked politician is not the person who goes out and goes by the way it's safe and that kind of therefore means that people sort of think that that's not true I mean I think they're probably right to think it's not true but I think it probably would be in a better position if Rishi was the one doing that and I kind of think all of those things would sort of happen to a lesser extent because of the function of the treasury but as you say part of the thing he benefited from is a surprising number of political journalists did sort of write, in, write him off and go into this idea that he was someone with no thoughts and circumstance of his own, which meant that he benefited from being written up incredibly strongly because he revealed himself to be what was always the case, which was a very bright person who was hugely qualified for the role. So, yeah, that was just a very long-winded way of saying, I don't know. He's a very good media performer as well compared to a lot of the ministers who the public has only really been introduced to properly during the crisis, like Matt Hancock, who gets very rattled in interviews and sort of has these strange kind of facial expressions and things. Whereas Rishi Sunak is just so calm, accepts that, you know, the policies aren't perfect and he seems to anticipate the weaknesses of the things that he's announced before they're, before they're picked up on. And obviously that's just a, just a symptom of what you said, Stephen, that he is, you know, he's quite, bright and and well suited to the job but I do think in this strange time where everyone's more plugged in than they would be even if they're only just 
you know, watching the news once a day to see that those good media performances without looking like you're obfuscating or getting rattled is is probably um, more of a skill than uh, than maybe we appreciate. Yeah, and you also make a really good point about politics being comparative because let's say that what happened is Sajid Javid had decided, do you know what, I am going to lose my advisors. And then my strong understanding is that then what would have happened is that Rishi Sunak would have stayed as chief sec because he was very keen and he wanted to stay throughout the budget. But let's say they'd moved him to, to base, which was one of the plans that Downing Street had, was to, to, to move him on and on. You would have a situation where you would have another person who presented well in another thing. And I think you are right. And there is a really strong element, Anoush, that because a lot of the delivery-focused ministers have not presented well, both in terms of what they've done, but also equally important in terms of how they actually present, having someone who is obviously on on it does kind of give them sort of like a greater kind of, yeah, it adds to his aura simply because he's more impressive than the contrast. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>